And I remember driving home and I was just so excited mm -hmm. about nothing. <laughs> um, we were driving home, you know, um, through the woods on the highway and just looking out, seeing trees. It could be like a, a, a terrible uh, sign on the side of the highway. And I was just excited to see a, a sign, to see the trees. And I just remember they were kind of like, what is going on with you? Because I just was talkative. I just was alive and, and just happy to, to be experiencing a drive home from the therapist. Oh, that's that's um, wonderful. I mean, what you, you said excited about nothing, but my first reaction is what you just said. You were excited about feeling alive. You know, yeah. Didn't matter what the alive was about, but just feeling alive. Yeah. Great. And it's like I didn't know that I wasn't alive. I, you know, I, I didn't have this this complaint of feeling dead or, or feeling depressed, but it's <laughs> like I was all of those things and I didn't even realize it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't know what you don't have until you feel it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. The best way to help the American College of Organomy spread its knowledge is to let others know about us. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review. You can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Amazon's Audible, and Spotify. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about the medical organ therapy and social ergonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. This episode features my interview with Dr. Christ about how I became a medical ergonomist. I first heard about medical organ therapy at age 15, but it wouldn't be until three years later, while grieving the loss of my mother and feeling lost, that I would enter my own therapy. So, uh, Dr. Burrett, you're usually the host of uh, these podcasts, but it's my turn to be uh, the interviewer and talk with you about your story. So just start off telling us uh, your story about how you became a medical ergonomist. Thank you, Dr. Christ. Well, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I was in high school at the time and a, a new friend in the neighborhood who I'd gotten to know from sharing the same uh, high school bus uh, told me about Wilhelm Reich and ergonomy, and I remember him talking about armoring. Um, and I remember it sounding interesting, but it didn't really uh, make an impact on me. I didn't really follow up and ask him more. Um, I think he'd mentioned he was in therapy, but I, I, it didn't, it just didn't mean much to me at that point in my life, right then when he mentioned it. And, and so it was just an interesting idea that kind of uh, faded away at that moment. Yeah, how, how old were you then? What year in high school, roughly? Um, so I was probably 15 when I first heard about it, when I met this friend. And can you say anything more, what you remember about what struck you at that point? 
honestly, it wasn't even about Wilhelm Reich or ergonomy, but just I had a friend who was in therapy and I, I didn't know anyone else who was in therapy or, or why you would be in therapy. I mean, the whole idea of mental health therapy, psychiatry had no meaning to me. I see. Uh-huh. At that age. Yeah. Um, so at that point, did he talk about his therapy with you? No, I just knew he was in therapy and he didn't mention about why. And I, what I remember is it, it just, it was just kind of something, you know, someone could tell you something interesting. You're like, oh, okay, that that's neat. And, and then you just move on and you talk about something else. Right, right. So, um, so then what, what happened from there? So it was actually years later um, that I, I really learned more about Wilhelm Reich and ergonomy. And so um, actually what happened my freshman year in college, I was in Virginia Tech studying computer science. And so I um, uh, was 17, turned 18 in my freshman year. And um, in the spring, uh, that friend's mother, who I'd also become friends with, Mm-hmm. Uh, mailed me uh, Orson Bean's Me and the Orgone, a book about Orson Bean's experience uh, with medical orgone therapy with Dr. Baker. Uh-huh. And um, I, I just remember being fascinated and interested interested in it. You know, it's a, it's a small book, but I just sat there in this uncomfortable college uh, desk chair and read it, you know, until I was done. Mm. And, um, you know, in the May of of I think 2003, I said, you know, this seems important and maybe I should find out if, if medical organ therapy can help me with my struggles. Uh-huh. So what were your struggles at that point? Yeah. Um, so to back up, in eighth grade, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. and it, I had developed a way of, of, of not facing things. Um, that had begun earlier, but it it really came out in that experience. And then I knew she had breast cancer. I uh, she had chemotherapy at, at a point. Um, she lost her hair. She actually even had lymphedema, which is where you have swelling. And she had to wrap um, her arm in a bandage. And it was almost impossible to not see. And yet I did my best to not think about it, not look at it. Mm-hmm. not let it affect me and um partly you know thinking back i think it was just too much for me but th- the other part was you know i was eighth grade uh you know i was 13 years old that's a hard time uh, yeah. it was a hard time for me period just dealing with that and then to have my mother have cancer while i was struggling with adolescence and puberty mm-hmm. um, it was just too much is, is my sense of, of what was going on then. Yeah. So what happened was her cancer came back after a period of remission after treatment. And um, so I'd gone away to college and I cannot tell you what my sense of was with her treatment or if I was in denial or we just didn't talk about it. There was a part of of how I was raised where we didn't talk about a lot of things. And then there was my part of, of just not wanting to look at things. Mm-hmm. But what I do remember is my father called me and said, she's not doing well. Mm. And this was, I just turned 18 a few days after I turned 18 in my freshman year of college. And he, he told me he booked a flight for me to return home. Oh, wow. And I don't remember anything about 
me talking to my friends about why I'm going home. I don't remember the flight, but I remember walking into my home and my mother was in the living room in, in a, a hospital bed. Mm. And it was like I just learned right as I walked in that she was on hospice. Oh, wow. I said hello to her and, and she was a little bit out of it. I, I think she was on medicines and um, I was just trying to connect with her. And, and it was like, you know, there's just she was in like a fog. Mm-hmm. And then she just looks at me and says, Christopher, Christopher, like she finally recognized who I was. And it it was like I realized right then that like my mother's dying. And I had no clue. It was just like I woke up and found this out right when I came home. Uh-huh. <sighs> and yeah, I, I just hugged her and cried and, and didn't know what else to do. She she we just I, I just kind of held her for a while and I, I don't know how long mm-hmm. and she fell asleep and kind of got tired out. And I didn't know what to do, so I actually called up that friend uh, that I knew from, knew from high school and his mother, and I could walk to their house from where I lived and just went there and told them what just happened and, and that my mother was dying. And I just cried there more and, and hugged them. Uh-huh. And I went to bed that night, and my mother died that night. Oh, my. Wow. 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 Talk about timing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. it's crazy because I, I don't remember how much we talked about it or how much I thought about it. But after, you know, the funeral process, I went back to college almost as if nothing happened. Uh. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there was something along the lines of like, just finish out this year because, you know, you're in the middle of it and, and maybe that's the right thing to do. I don't know if I was told that, if I thought that or both. Mm-hmm. But, but I did. What happened, I, I think, was that instead of really feeling what was going on, I, I just distracted myself. I played video games a lot during the day. I would distract myself by going out with friends at night. And I wasn't depressed. I, I wasn't particularly anxious. I was just nothing. It was just nothing was happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you know, you, getting through my classes and, and, and just kind of going through the motions you describe it so vividly though i mean it's yeah quite striking yeah and and that's something i I later realized that um tv and computer games especially was a go-to way that i had just to disconnect and not think about things not feel anything and you know to a degree it worked really well for me just to not yeah yeah be in the moment so you understand the function of those without being moralistic about it. It's good or bad. It just served a function that had good effects and some terrible effects too. You know, just not facing things. Yeah. Yeah. I think my fear was that I'd be overwhelmed and just crumble. Yeah. 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 So. Um, yeah. So then what? Somehow I, I was in contact with that friend and his mother, and, and his mother then mailed me that book somehow must have had some idea that maybe she could get through to me you know i don't remember having long conversation about it mm-hmm. but something of the long along the lines of you know this might be interesting to you and may be helpful for you to read and 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 she was right because i connected with um orson bean's story of his own struggles mm-hmm. And so that was in the spring of that freshman year. I, I finished that year up and came home. 
and decided I wanted to try therapy. Mm -hmm. And I actually, if I remember correctly, um, that friend's mother's therapist, I don't think had any openings and she was close enough with me to give up one of her appointments and say, you know, just try it out and have an evaluation with this doctor who I uh, trust and who's helped me a lot and, and just see how it goes. Great, great. Uh, and yeah. I had, I don't remember what I expected or, or what I hoped to get out of it, but I just knew I had to try something. What I was doing wasn't working. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember a lot of what we talked about, but there were two or three things that, that stand out. And by this time, I don't remember actually even talking about my mother's death. You know, this was, she, she died in November and this was now in the summer of, of that year. Um, I I remember saying something along the lines of, of feeling lost, or at least that's how I did feel. Mm -hmm. What stood out to me about that first therapy appointment with a medical ergonomist was, um, it struck me how much it excited me to excite someone else or someone else to be interested about how I was doing, who I was. Uh Um, it, it was like a feeling I, I, wasn't used to uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, someone really getting uh, involved and caring about your reactions yes yeah oh, and, wow. that's great and he said something to me in that session I, I won't get into the detail of what it was but it was his way of saying like i see you i get you and it just made me cry yeah and i, I could really feel connected with him mm-hmm. <sighs> and that was all I needed to know that I had to pursue, you know, figuring out, you know, what do I do to, to get a, a time in with this doctor for therapy, figure out how to pay for it, and, and just what do I ever have to do to keep things going. Mm-hmm. It, it was moving for me, but what I, I remember still very vividly was, so that friend his mother and I kind of had like back-to-back appointments to make it all work. I didn't have a car. Mm. And so we were able to arrange things so that we kind of drove up together and had appointments while the other people waited. And I remember driving home and I was just so excited mm-hmm. about nothing. <laughs> um, we were driving home, you know, um, through the woods on the highway and just looking out, seeing trees it could be like a, a, a terrible uh, sign on the side of the highway. And I was just excited to see a, a sign, to see the trees. And I just remember they were kind of like, what is going on with you? Because I just was talkative. I just was alive and, and just happy to, to be experiencing a drive home from the therapist. Oh, that's that's um, wonderful. I mean, what you, you said excited about nothing, but my first reaction is what you just said. You were excited about feeling alive. Yeah. Didn't matter what the alive was about, but just feeling alive. Yeah. Right. And it's like I didn't know that I wasn't alive. I, you know, I I didn't have this this complaint of feeling dead or or feeling depressed, but it's (laughs) like I was all of those things and I didn't even realize it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't know what you don't have until you feel it, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, that's a great story. That's a wonderful story about. You know, an aspect of therapy, because many people go to therapy with specific symptoms of anxiety, depression, but you went with just some sense 
there's got to be more here. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you say it that way because it was good in the beginning <laughs> because yeah. I didn't realize yeah. how anxious I was, how upset I was, how angry I was, how sad I was. Yeah. And then therapy became a lot harder because yeah. then I had to feel all of that. Right, right, right. And that's something I think a lot of people don't know, but it's it's so profoundly true about therapy. Yeah. But 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 I felt enough of the benefit that I was going to stick it out. And uh, so what I decided to do was take a year off from college, mm -hmm. uh, just work as a waiter and and just have therapy and kind of see what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and so it, so what did happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I didn't stop reading at Me and the Oregon. I, I read then a lot of Wilhelm Reich's books, Dr. Baker's book, Man in the Trap. Mm -hmm. And it was just an amazing discovery of things I didn't know and things I did know that I had forgotten about. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing to me. Mm -hmm. um, can you give a couple of examples? Of yeah. Um, so one of my earliest memories is first grade. And um, two things happened in first grade that I, I can still remember parts of it and, and, and feelings of it like it was yesterday. And, and one feeling was um, we had an assembly for some reason, and it was in the gymnasium um, in the elementary school. And what I remember is, I, I remember when I was in elementary school, everything was just bigger, things were higher, things were farther away. Mm -hmm. And so I remember filling all the students filling to this auditorium and it was just like, you know, to my experience was like being in, you know, the Madison Square Garden or something, <laughs> but, yeah. but it was probably, you know, 100 feet right. wide. Right. And, you know, I was in first grade, so the second graders, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders were all taller than me. Then there was the teachers and it was just this massive area. And I don't know what the assembly was for. And I don't know if it was a band playing or if it was a recording, but we listened to the Star Spangled Banner. Uh -huh. And as the music um, played, I just remember feeling this wonderful feeling in my body that, um, you know, one talks about being moved by music and it's this physical feeling that just kind of um, it was like a wave going through me mm -hmm. and it was pleasurable at first. And then I remember feeling terrified. Yeah. I remember saying, oh, my, like, what is going on? What is happening to me? And I remember looking around this gymnasium, you know, what felt like miles and miles away. And looking at all these people who all seemed fine, and I'm having this feeling like, what is going on with me? And I remember just, I was crying because I was moved by the music, but then I was also crying because then I started to become afraid. And I just remember sitting down, like hoping it would pass because mm. I didn't know what was going on. Mm. And I never talked about this. I never, I had this feeling like I couldn't talk about it. I don't know why or, or, or what yeah. made me uh, feel like that was what I should do, but I just knew um, perhaps because I looked around and I didn't see anybody who, who seemed to be having this experience. Um, but it was like I had that experience. And then when I'm 18 reading Wilhelm Reich's books, it, it came back in an instant. Uh, uh. You know, he, he talks about um, streaming. Um, 
this feeling of energy moving through you that you know often you can feel with music mm-hmm. and it was just like i got it right then wow that's great that's great yeah. and speaking of that i realized growing up and, and this also I, I was aware of it but it, it almost wasn't conscious was that I felt myself getting away from that. You know, it almost reached a peak, I think, in first grade. Mm-hmm. And then I could feel that um, receding or, or or feeling less and less of that as I got older and older. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But before I get to being older, the other thing in first grade that happened was there was this girl, Jamie, and I couldn't tell you how long it was, whether it was a week or whether it was the whole year, Mm-hmm. But we had this love affair wow, that that's great. was just amazing. And I, I kid you not, the feeling was the same as how I feel for my wife right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's different. I've been with my wife for 10 years, so it's a deeper, different relationship. But but just the excitement of a love relationship was, was no different. And in fact, it may have been even more intense then because of what I said about... Um, how life can kind of beat you down and, and, and um, right. Right. some of that can recede. Right. Um, but I, I remember, you know, we'd have in first grade, we'd have story time and you'd all have your little squares. And I remember wanting to be as close to her as possible to snuggle up while we listened to a story. Um, somehow we learned sign language and we did the I love you uh, <laughs> sign language as we, you know, kind of if we walked by each other in the hall or in the classroom. That would be our kind of thing with yeah. each other. And then at one point we would uh, figure out that no one was in the coat closet and we can go there and we could kiss. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, for the, the feeling of kissing your sweetheart in first grade, mm-hmm. um, it, it was amazing. And what stands out to me, not only was the pleasure of that relationship, but I remember coming home and telling my family how excited I was about it. Mm-hmm. And the I don't remember what anybody said, but especially my mom gave me that feeling like something was wrong. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well. Like first graders weren't supposed to kiss or or just this feeling like that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's still a mystery, mystery to me because I don't remember what happened between her and me or how it ended. Mm-hmm. And. I actually even look back in yearbooks. She wasn't in the second grade, third grade, fourth grade yearbooks. So it just kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. But it was this bright spot, you know, in my development as a kid that I'll always, always remember. But also the reaction that, you know, people around me had, including my mother. Yeah. I mean, no wonder I rang such a, a bell for you. Then. But, but you, you talk about a bright spot in your development, but it was, it's an experience that was in you and remains in you. And, you know, uh, that, that's the part that I think is crucial. Yeah, yeah and, and so Reich wrote a lot about um, the development of children, but also how much we still don't know about children's development in a healthy way and what that means for relationships with other children and how there's that terrible tendency uh, for others, other children and, and grown-ups to just dismiss or criticize love relationships and, and just love in, in children. Yeah, yeah. But you're very lucky to have had that experience. I think it's even worse these days than we 
when you were that age. You know, everything is pathologized now. Yeah. But thank God you had that experience. No, I, I feel fortunate. Um, I think it had a lasting effect on me, um, both in terms of my love relationships, but also of just knowing how important that was to me and to make sure that I can help other people, whether it's working with um, young patients or their, their parents, to, to mm -hmm. hopefully be able to see some of that. Yeah, yeah, great. The other thing that I mentioned um, about feeling more distant from kind of that that physical sensation, those streamings that, that mm -hmm. I felt listening to that music was, um, again, I don't think it was a conscious um, process, but as I got older, especially into adolescence, I could feel the distance from what I had known. Mm -hmm. um, and at, at that time, what was conscious, what was I was frustrated and angry about with difficulty and, and making social relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, um, the struggle of independence and autonomy with my parents of, you know, what can I do? What, what is it appropriate for me to do? And what am I capable of doing? But looking back on it, I think I was just frustrated because I wasn't in touch with what I used to be. And I, I put that out on the world to a degree, you know, the, uh -huh. like, um, it was not not one person or one institution, but I, I felt the whole world is kind of um, um, disappointing me. Uh -huh. um, that and, and the effect that I felt was internal of, of distant from nature, you know? I, I, that's a great uh, perspective, you know, just to realize, you know, that struggle was going on and, and it got externalized. But, you know, it sounds like you... Um, have been able to see where the actual problems were. And that's uh, that happens to so many children, people growing up, adolescents, that is the problem in me or is it outside of me? And to get that clarity is so important. Yeah, I, I didn't realize at a time, and, and I don't even think early on in my therapy, I think that took years for me to really um, mm -hmm. feel that, but also be clear, you know, on an intellectual level of, of understanding what that all, what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it's obvious, maybe not, but with all these experiences I had, I, I couldn't ignore how organomy would play a role in my future. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but part of my therapy in the beginning was trying to figure out what the heck I wanted to do with my future because I wasn't clear. Uh -huh. so I, I mentioned I had gone to Virginia Tech for computer science. Right. But that was a um, kind of the um, combination of I was good at math. Um, I'd gotten into computer games and enjoyed working with computers. And it was like a known good career to have you know this was 2003 you know you go into computers how could you not right right, right. Your, um, your future is made <laughs> yeah right um and yet i i wasn't so convinced after doing a year of computer science and i couldn't figure out why i wasn't convinced or what it was i wasn't satisfied with but i knew something was off mm -hmm. and so um my therapist literally asked, have you ever considered going into medicine? And I couldn't tell you if I'd ever thought about it. I don't think I had, but it was kind of this aha moment like, oh, huh, like maybe I should think about that. You know, 
he was this doctor's medical ergonomist working with me and I really appreciated what he was doing for me. Why wouldn't I consider wanting to do something like that for someone else? Do you, do you have any sense of what it, what it was that was happening that made him say that at that point? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I would say I'm glad he did. <laughs> Me too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happened? I mean, he planted a seed. So what happened? Well, you know, actually, th this is an idea. I, I, I don't know how much um, this is based on what was actually going on, but I remember having an idea of it wasn't just computers I wanted to get into, but I wanted I was thinking maybe that I would work for the government or do something with computers um, for national defense. Like I had this part oh. of me that wanted to help the country. And, and remember, this was shortly after 9-11. Oh, right. Um, you know, 2002, 2003. Uh -huh. I think I'd always had that, but that just ramped up the intensity of right. any right. feelings uh, I had about that. And. Well, also, it wasn't a random song that moved you, so it was a star-spangled banner. I don't think that's an accident. And so, so, but but somehow, I, I think I developed this ideal of what I was supposed to do or should be, and mm -hmm. somehow computers didn't fit that. I, I, I had this ideal of maybe being more aggressive, and, you know, maybe I had this idea of, you know, am I supposed to be a soldier or, or, or some kind of this macho person? Mm -hmm. And yet um, I knew that wasn't me. You know, I, I wasn't a macho person. I was the kid who played sports and was pretty good, but like felt uncomfortable because I was just always bigger than kids. And like, you know, I remember my brother telling me how it hurt somebody, not on purpose, but because I was just bigger and, and like, you know, they would we would collide and they would fall down and I would be fine. And I just like mm -hmm. wanted to help them up instead of like going with the ball, you know, mm -hmm. and, and yet there was this this feeling like that's what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't reconcile that. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I think somehow I thought maybe with computers where I had some interest in math and, and helping the country, maybe that would satisfy that. Mm -hmm. And my mom was a nurse, interestingly enough. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I don't remember talking with her much about her work. Um, but I think it came through with just how she functioned. You know, she took care of people. Um, she always put others before herself. And uh, I, I think somehow that was in me and I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe the ergonomist picked up on that and, and I wasn't quite aware of it until he kind of mentioned it. Mm -hmm. But even when you said you, it had never crossed your mind, it's fascinating how... You know, there was someone in the medical field, you know, right in your house growing up, but it somehow never quite connected with you as a path. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, now thinking back, it's like I love to help people. And how, how could that not have, have mm -hmm. um, been right there? And yet it wasn't, you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, so what happened then was I. I when I was working, I took a year off when I was in therapy. I, I took a biology course just to kind of dip my feet in, just to make sure I, I wasn't just going to, you know, sign up for a whole new year of college and 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 um, jump in in the deep end. And and it worked out, and I did well in it, and it kind of satisfied my criteria of okay, you know, this feels like the right way to go, other than just having some ideas about it. And and then after that year, then I decided to enroll as a pre med student. And while I continued therapy, mm -hmm. 
And um, so that was after one year of therapy or in that first year of therapy? Is when in you... that, I would say maybe after the first six months, it became clear that uh, that was pretty that cool. was the direction I was going to start off. Not that I, I was 100 percent. OK, this is what's going on. But I felt confident enough with yeah. what was going on. And, and most of it was just how um, beneficial my own therapy was. That's mm -hmm. what gave me the confidence to say, this is what I want to do. I know it's going to be difficult. I don't know if I can do it, but I want to try to see if I can help people like I'm being helped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, you, you know our concept of the three layers, nature, character, and personality. And as you're telling your story, I just keep thinking your nature is this very alive, lively, caring person, and you developed a computer robotic character and persona that, that you were stuck in for a while, and the therapy just brought you back in contact with who you actually are at your depth. Yes, I, I think that's accurate. And, and because I, sh you know, I never thought about it in those terms, but looking back, not just that you know, kind of um, robotic aspect, but just I knew I was a nice guy and yet I felt so angry growing up and, and, and especially as a teenager, I, I couldn't make sense or know what to do with that because I'm a nice guy. Why, why am I so angry? You know, that was this, what do I do with this? You know, I'm frustrated and, and yet I have to be this nice guy. So it was like, then there was this facade of, of the nice guy who, you know, rather than being frustrated, um, I could be annoying, you know, it would come out in this like irritated kind of way that would then um, interfere with social relationships that then would get me more frustrated. And then what do you do with that? It was just this terrible cycle that I could step back from a moment and, and see it happening, but I had no way to do anything with it, even though I, it was like seeing this, you know, um, train wreck and, and slow motion, just seeing things going downhill, but being helpless to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's the next step in the story then? So um, you started taking pre-med courses. So I, I, I enrolled in college and started taking pre-med courses. And I'll tell you, um, I think this may have come out in conversations you've not, you and I have had, but I was so excited then to become a medical ergonomist when I was taking pre-med courses. And then I was getting into the courses and I was so frustrated with how dead and mechanical, especially mm -hmm. biology and chemistry were. Yes. And that was a real struggle for me to kind of press on and find what I could be excited about with the sciences. In fact, what was most natural for me to enjoy was physics. There was just something about physics that was exciting to me and, and I could enjoy, uh, which is funny because for whatever reason, I've come to learn that pre-med students do really well in biology and chemistry and, and struggle with physics. And I was the exact opposite. I was getting the A pluses in physics and then struggling to get through biology because it just was so dull to me. Um, and which helped because then I could help them with physics and they can help me with the other ones when, you know, but so it was hard to keep that excitement going while I was doing it. But but it helped me to have therapy while I was going through that, both to figure out how to just 
stand that frustration and okay. and also to find excitement um because i developed this um tendency just to withdraw when i became frustrated and that could really put um a lot of obstacles in my way with studying yeah right. um, and then also just facing hurdles you know i could pull in my natural tendencies that, that i developed of you know watching tv or playing video games and mm -hmm. I don't remember at what point it was, but I'd literally gone in my first year of college to maybe playing video games for, it could have been eight hours one day, you know, or, or for a period of time that I just stopped all TV and computer games. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just had to, uh, because it was just so easy to, to um, just disconnect um, because it would be too painful to deal with the frustration or whatever else was going on. Um, and so I just had to make that choice. Mm -hmm. Well, it strikes me, um, you know, I'm not at all surprised that physics is what uh, you really enjoyed and, and excited you. In, in my opinion, physics is really much more about direct observations that conclusions come from as opposed to chemistry. It's, it's really something sort of magical. You, there's not many direct observations and biology has become so theoretical and removed from just observing. Uh, I mean, that's why in biology I love the field biology. That's what I loved actually watching things. But, but you know the the coursework um, physics I think is much more real. Yeah, that that that's how it felt to me. Um, you're right. I, I like the way you described that. And so, um, in my senior year, then I decided to apply to colleges, and or excuse me, to medical schools, and. Um, what I learned about the different medical schools, there's MD Medical School and DO Medical School, and I had um, drawn an interest in um, the DO Medical Schools, the osteop osteopathic medical schools, uh, primarily because early on they allowed direct observation, and it not only allowed it, but encouraged it through their extra training in musculoskeletal medicine, and like what you traditionally think of as osteopathic medicine. And so um, that was nice, you know, while you're learning anatomy and a lot of the uh, theoretical basis of medicine to be mm -hmm. working. So basically you're working with uh, fellow medical students. Mm -hmm. And so you could observe how they're standing, how they're walking, um, where's their um, a lot of tension muscularly, where is it lacks and, and so forth. And just looking at human beings and and what's going on with them in, in, in a um, in a basic way, uh, I, I think is a really uh, was advantageous for me in, in medical school, yeah. and then to become a medical ergonomist, it, it just allowed more time uh, mm -hmm. to observe people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to the the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. It was similar in ways that there was more excitement, and it was closer to what I wanted to be doing. But there was similar struggles with that I felt in college of, of again, a lot of the, um, it's amazing how you could even consider that medicine could be dead or mechanical, but it, it can be, you know? Yes, um, yeah. And again, I had to deal with the frustration of this isn't exactly how I want things to be or, or how I, I want to be spending my time doing this. And, and just to get through it um, and then just just 
what any medical student deals with, just the amount of information. Yeah. You know, I, I went into it thinking like, am I smart enough for medical school? Mm-hmm. And I realized that it, it was a lot of just the capacity to stand how much there was, the intensity of it, more than, you know, being some brilliant person who could make sense of it all, you know? That's, that's very well put. Yeah, yeah. Just the capacity to to um, manage all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. And um, so so I enjoyed it and, and, and struggled at the same time. And, and then, uh, you know, I always had my mind set on becoming a medical ergonomist, but I kept my, my eyes open and, and kept an open mind to what else might be interested to me. Uh, but even though I enjoyed doing rotations and, and all different kinds of medicine, um, it was clear that I wanted to do psychiatry. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I don't, I could not imagine being a psychiatrist without having my own therapy mm-hmm. and, and having the background in medical ergonomy. It, again, speaking of, of looking at things mechanically at, you know, in a sterile way, um, yeah. It just, I couldn't function that way if I wanted to. And so um, I feel gratitude that I was able to have had that experience, my own therapy, have to have discovered Reich's books so that I can help patients um, in a human way, in, in, a, um, in a functional way. And the other thing, I was recently rereading Wilhelm Reich in Organomy by um, Ola Rackness. Yes. And he is describing Reich's work, and you can feel it and see it in Reich's books. But he was a genius in a lot of ways. But again, you know, what I just said about medicine, it, it almost wasn't even that he was so brilliant that he made, um, you know, he put things together in, in ways that someone else couldn't. But And he could do that. But what stood out to me is the most genius of him was not ignoring observations that a lot of us can also make, but just disregard. Uh-huh. And overlook, yes. And, yeah. and overlook things that, that we all see it, but we just don't understand the importance of it. And somehow he was able to just um, see the significance of, of everyday observations. And Any particular ones come to mind that, that struck you as you were rereading that book? I, I can't, there's a lot of them. The one that just stands out to me now is just this idea of energy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I had this experience in my own therapy of how much I was helped in, in some of the ways, especially early on, I had no understanding of what was actually going on, but I could feel it, you know? Mm-hmm. And and then when I'm reading Reich's books and, and you hear how he started in psychiatry and, and then just kept following these threads and, and, and then ended up discovering energy. Mm-hmm. The, the way I look at it is it could be a Seinfeld joke. You know, Seinfeld makes jokes that are so brilliant because they're observations that we all see and yeah. he's able to put it together in just the right way that yes. it's just like, duh, you know? <laughs> and, and, yeah. and in some ways, that's how Reich's discovery of energy is. You know, we all talk about energy like, oh, I wish I had more energy. I don't have enough energy. I need to have more coffee. I need to... energy drinks. I mean, we have energy drinks. Yes, and, yes, and, yes. And it's everywhere. It's in common language. We talk about it all the time. And yet we all ignore it or lots of us ignore it. And he did not ignore yeah. energy. And yes. and. You know, he was a student of Freud's and Freud talked about um, 
libido as a, a, you know this libidinous energy, sexual energy, and and Reich did not ignore what does that mean? You know, so many of, of Freud's pupils just heard it and just kept going. Yes, yeah, no, that's that's a great observation about what's happened with it, and and you're right, Reich took it as well, let's not just talk about this as a concept. Maybe it's actually something real. Yes. <laughs> Yes, because you know, it's so easy to get mystical about energy, but um, but if you actually read Reich's work, he it, there's he's not mystical. He's just saying, OK, this is the observation. This is what everyone's talking about. What is this about? What are we looking at? Yeah. And then the most amazing thing, reading Ola Rachna's book, I didn't even think about it before, but I realized that, you know, Reich um, kind of described his process of what he ended up calling functional thinking. Mm-hmm. He was literally observing how he observed and, yes. and making sense of why is it that or, or how is it that I'm going from this discovery to this discovery? You know, it's just happening. I'm just a dog sniffing and finding things, clues here, clues there. And, you know, people are criticizing him from going from different fields of medicine to different fields of science. And, and yet he's just doing it. And then he stands back and looks and says, what's happening here? And then he figures out that he has this natural way of looking at things that all of us, um, you know, to one degree or another, have lost the capacity to do or, or, or struggling to, to continue to do. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. No, that's that's uh, that's really well, very so clearly put. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. So one one other question I had, I mean, uh, um, is can you um, say a bit about when once you became a medical ergonomist, actually starting to treat people with that form of therapy, uh, just what that was like for you? Well, there's two things that stand out. One was that I felt a, a responsibility. Um, which I tend to do, and because it's so it's so easy um, for people to dismiss things, for people to criticize things, mm-hmm. that I, I, I really felt like um, a need to uh, make sure I did the best that I can. Yeah. Um, I don't know how else to say it other than that. Um, But luckily, the flip end of that, the other end of that, is that it's really enjoyable. Uh Uh, And that helps with the responsibility that I feel. Um, And that working with patients in this way is just very exciting. And it there's just so much movement, both in the patient and in me, Mm -hmm. that um, even if it's you're working with something very difficult with a patient. There's something exciting about it, no matter how challenging. And that in itself, I think, helps with working with the patients because they can feel that that you're working with something important, mm-hmm. um, no matter what the reason they came uh, to you for. And um, is there a particular example of that that comes to mind? Um. I can't think of one now. I mean, it, 
it's one of those things that you know there, there's a hundred of them every day and yet <laughs> um i can't think of it at this moment but um getting away from just talking about the content of what's going on with somebody uh you know beyond the words of what someone says to you and and how they look and how they feel how they move and how it feels the interaction between me and the patient yeah. um you know even having that as one of the parts of therapy of what what are we feeling between us right now the doctor and the patient relationship um is such an amazing amazing experience in a healing experience uh for the patient that it's amazing that it could possibly be ignored mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah no I, I i it i would encourage the listeners to uh listen to the presentation you gave the webinar presentation of the young woman that you worked with during the pandemic i mean you you illustrated so clearly how uh, she got excited and you were excited the the contact that happened is, is just can be thrilling so yeah. yeah yeah but you know it's it's even the heartbreak and some terrible things that happen in life um to to be able to really connect over that Mm-hmm. Um, as painful as it is, and, and this is something that, you know, is, is both something I have to deal with as the doctor and then also in my ongoing therapy of, of being able to stand that. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to describe in words, but it's, it's, a, it's an important, meaningful, however painful experience, you know, mm-hmm. shared between two people. Yeah. Um, well, you, you, you have several times said it's hard to put into words, and I think that's an important aspect of ergonomy that maybe is not quite understood well enough, that we are dealing with things at a level far deeper than words. So um, it, some of the things we're dealing with cannot be put into words. You know, um, they're coming from parts of the person's nature that um, develop before they learn to speak in words. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to add to your story? Anything else you think would be important for the listeners to hear about how you became a medical ergonomist and the uh, effect it's had? I think that's the most of it. One thing that, um, you know, just stands out as that I realized later on. By my mom dying, she saved my life. Wow. Oh. And not that I was going to die. Right. Right. But it was like that that I had to deal with that 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 could be a reason to go into therapy in addition to what else was going on in my life. I I don't know if I would have ever gone into therapy if uh-huh. that hadn't have happened. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then on top of that, um there was a part that I struggled with of, of, you know, she'd always call me her little baby. Oh. And when she died, it was like permission then to, to be a man. You know, I literally turned 18 right before she died. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have, there was no conflict or guilt about it. Oh, that's, that, wow, that's striking. That's very striking. Yeah. Yeah. I could just go on and and figure things out and and not um, have some feeling like I, I I had to, you know, be mama's little baby. 
But you put it as her um, death allowed you to um, uh, get into therapy or go into therapy. But I, I want to flip it around the other way a bit, that uh, what so often happens, traumatic things happen in people's lives, and it can either put them under and they become contracted and stuck in that traumatic uh, reaction for the rest of their lives, or people can uh, see that as an opportunity or take it as an opportunity, and you did the latter, and thank God you did. Yeah. 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 Well, Dr. Bird, thank you so much for telling your story. It's very moving, very touching, and um, uh, I've known you for a number of years, and I've learned things today. I've not known at all about you, and I really appreciate hearing it, so thank you again. You're welcome, and thank you, Dr. Christ. How do you feel after listening to my story? What do you think? After I listened to my interview with Dr. Christ, I was struck by how important self-reflection was in keeping me from projecting my feelings onto others or the world at large. Reconnecting with myself helped me to be clear on when to express myself in therapy, when to share with those around me, and when to keep my feelings to myself. I hope that everyone, but particularly adolescents and young adults of today, can consider therapy as a way to manage their feelings rather than projecting them onto other people or institutions. This type of projecting seems to be happening all the more frequently, especially as sociopolitics invades every aspect of life. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your family and friends and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at organomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Organomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.